0: podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week where now for over five years and nearly 300 episodes, I've had the enormous privilege and honor of sitting in this chair on this set. That changes about once a year where we interview a different person, thought leader, business titan, celebrity, survivor of trauma, researcher, someone that has done some hard work on making you a better leader. Franklin Covey is the world's most trusted leadership firm and I and privileged to each week have these great conversations invested and helping to build your leadership competency. It might making you might be making you a more agile thinker, a better project manager, more responsible for a disciplined and high-performance culture, how to be a more trusted leader. You name it, every week we try to bring to you some of the world's most profound thinkers, researchers, and thought leaders to invest in not just you, but also in ourselves as well. I'm also the author of the multi-volume series from HarperCollins called Master Mentors. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are now out in paper. Back print, digital, and video book, where each year I publish a new volume featured on 30 guests that I think have delivered a transformational insight. Love to have you pick up a copy of Master Mentors Volume 3, releasing soon. Our guest today is my favorite economic geographer. His name is Bent Flubiere. He is A Dane that also teaches around the world in universities. He's joining us today from Oxford, where he is in residence as a professor. He's the author or editor of numerous books, including his most recent release, How Big Things Get Done, The Surprising Factors That Determine the Fate of Every Project, from home renovations to space exploration and everything in between. Bent, welcome to On Leadership.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Uh, Ben, I mentioned that you are my favorite economic geographer, you're my only economic geographer. In fact, quite frankly, I have no freaking clue what an economic geographer is. So would you take a few minutes and reorient the listeners and viewers from around the world on your research background, your education, and your expertise? We'll talk a bit about your most recent release.
1: So an economic geographer is a specialized economist, uh, somebody who specializes in the economics of geography. So the economics of cities, the economics of regions, uh, the economics of geographical space. And my special angle on this is very big projects. So typically projects that cost uh, multiples of billions of dollars, sometimes hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, which, of course... Uh, typically have uh, enormous impact on on how we live, uh, the cities we live in, and so on. So that's what I specialize in. How do we best understand big ventures like this? How do we best design them? How do we best deliver them?
0: It's always fascinating to figure out how someone got from here to there. In addition to being a thought leader, a speaker, an advisor, a consultant, a professor, you have had a varied journey. How does someone find themselves as arguably the world's most renowned economic geographer?
1: Well, I wouldn't go that far, you know, like Paul Krugman, who's another, probably a more well-known economic geographer, uh, the columnist at the New York Times and, and professor in the US. He's also an economic geographer. But, um, you know, I've specialized in in big projects from early on. So in that area, uh, you know, I'd be happy to see him as a a, a world leader. And um, I just happened to see early on that uh, this is the future. The future is going to be delivered in big projects. And this is exactly what we are seeing now, the whole uh, you know, energy transition that the whole world is going through right now is all done in mega projects. This is just hundreds and hundreds of mega projects being built around the world, and if we're going to get the climate right, we better get the projects right. You know, so that's just one of many points in 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 my new book.
0: Ben, the book is a fascinating read. It's it's, it's primarily focused as examples, filled with stories of large projects done right, large projects gone south, not done so well but you're able to extrapolate the principles of successful projects for smaller projects as well. I'd like to first start with talking about what is the psychology and politics of projects? And perhaps as a Dane, you're a very plain-spoken person, which I think will be a great gift to all of our listeners today. Talk about the role that both psychology and politics play in all projects.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the many examples. You know, we, made, we, we decided that we were always uh, not going to lose sight of specific examples, specific stories about what we are talking about. So we talk about specific examples of psychology and, and power, uh, which are the two things we see as the root causes for things going either wrong or right with big projects. So, and both areas are extremely well uh, researched, you know, in the scholarly literature. So if we take the psychology side first, this is all about cognitive biases and how we as humans are hardwired uh, you know, to see the world in certain ways. So, for instance, we are born optimists. This is from nature for good reason. It's, we probably wouldn't survive if we didn't have some optimism. Uh, we uh, we uh, have other uh, uh, biases like overconfidence, uh, something called the planning fallacy. We think we can do things faster than we can, etc. There are dozens and dozens of these biases and they are like I said, very well uh, researched and, and uh, documented. And uh, we are humans, we have them no matter what we do. So what we ask is, OK, what happens when we come to big projects with those biases? What happens if we are, we are optimistic? Well, obviously, if you're optimistic about the budget, you're going to do a low budget and you're going to have a cost overrun later. And that's exactly what we see if you're optimistic about the benefits. You think your projects are going to do much more good than they actually do that's exactly what we see in the data so in addition to data we actually have a database of 16,000 projects the biggest of its kind the best of its kind in the world and uh, and uh, we build on that in the in the book in addition to the exam so we combine stories and data okay that's the psychological side on the power side we as humans As long as we have existed, it it, it looks like from evolutionary biology and so on. We have been uh, jockeying for position. Uh, We have tried to finesse situations uh, to serve our own ends. That's what we call power bias. We, 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 We try to use our power or politics to influence the results that we get. So if you play politics with the project, what do you do? Well, If you're in the planning stages, you try to make it look good on paper. That's the first thing you would do because you want your project to be approved and get funded. How do you do that? By making it look attractive in the beauty uh, competition, that is uh, assessment of projects. So you make it look good on paper and you do that by uh, making it look cheap and uh, like it delivers a lot of benefits and you'll do it on time and quickly. And uh, again, that's exactly what we see in the data. So these are the two root causes, the the psychology and the power that uh, people uh, are bringing to projects uh, are what make them either go wrong or go well. The people who understand this, who really understand the psychology and understand the power games and how to play them uh, uh, well... Uh, and in an acceptable manner are the people who succeed with their projects. The people who ignore these things, which are the majority of people, people are not self-aware of their own psychology. They are not aware of the power games that are being played around them. And if they don't get this right, if they're not aware of it, then they are very likely to fail with their projects uh, unless they are lucky. And I wouldn't count on luck in delivering the big projects that I'm working with.
0: Ben I'm suggesting this is probably an oversimplification but would you argue then that every CEO every CFO every COO every executive sponsor of any project should both recognize this and perhaps call it out early on hey there will be politics there will be some psychology at play let's talk about what is naturally going to happen to competent people so that we can recognize how that prejudices are determined outcome now. I'm guessing you would suggest people should talk about it and acknowledge it upfront.
1: Yes, they should talk about it and acknowledge it upfront. And not only that, we have developed, we and others, colleagues, have developed very powerful tools uh, to deal with these things. And, uh, you know, including Danny Kahneman, the most famous behavioral economist or psychologist of all, uh, have developed certain uh, decision-making tools It's called decision hygiene. You need to bring a certain hygiene to your decisions uh, in order to make them go well. And and that's what you need to do. So first, like you say, you need to acknowledge it. And then you need to bring in the relevant toolbox because there are really good tools for for this, you know, for how to make decisions right and how to uh, deliver big projects. right. There's an additional thing that uh, if we talk to the CEOs and and CFOs and the whole C-suite, That it's important that the people at the top level realize is that big projects can completely destroy your company or your organization, whether you're in business or you're in government or in NGOs. Uh, One big project gone wrong can be a torpedo that blows you out of the water. That needs to be realized. And the C-suite needs to understand that. They're thinking that when you have a project, this is like something delegated. is wrong for the biggest project. You cannot delegate the biggest project. You need to keep your eyes on them from the C-suite and not assume that the project director is taking care of things, because that's a big assumption, and you need to verify that assumption by your work.
0: Uh, About 20 years ago, U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld held a now fairly notorious often sometimes ridiculed, press conference. I believe it was during the U.S. invasion or liberation, pick your verb, of Iraq, when he talked about unknowns. Known unknowns and unknown knowns and unknown unknowns. And now it's kind of been parodied on a couple of comedy shows. Uh, You talk about that in your book, specifically around how we should deal with unknowns in any size project. What advice would you give all of us that may recognize there's going to be unknowns, but our own politics and psychology either have us compartmentalizing them or minimizing them or blaming someone else for them? What should we know about how best to deal with unknown or known unknowns?
1: So first of all, uh, it's not a parody when Rumsfeld is talking about this. I mean, there's a lot of bad things to say about Rumsfeld. Uh, I can agree with people who, uh, who think so, but this is not one of them. He actually got that right, you know, uh, about the different uh, knowns and unknowns and unknown unknowns. And as you say, we deal with that in the book. Uh, so, again, the first thing is to realize that you have all these unknowns and then you need to figure out how to deal with it. And we spell that out in the book, including a methodology that we call reference class forecasting that is actually based on the work of uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner in economics. Um, That takes into account unknown unknowns. And most people actually think that that's not possible. Uh, And it sounds logical if you say that you can't forecast unknown unknowns because they're unknown. So how can you forecast them? And it's true if you think conventionally about forecasting, then uh, you give up. But what we say don't think conventionally about forecasting because you actually can forecast the unknown unknown. All you need to do is to look at historical projects and how they performed, because anything that influenced the historical projects and how they performed uh, will be included in in the outcomes, including unknown unknowns. So if you look at the data from actual outcomes, the effect of unknown unknowns are actually included. You might not not know uh, precisely how many percent of the performance was caused by unknown unknowns. It doesn't matter. If you have that included in your own forecast, then at least you have a contingency for unknown unknowns. And that's all you need in order to be prepared for dealing with them when they arrive.
0: Ben, I could see some people feeling overwhelmed by the concept, oh, so this book is about building skyscrapers. This book is about, you know, large-scale community development or a bridge or something the big dig. But really, one of the organizing principles of your work in this book, how big things get done, is that you help people build better discipline around the precision of their forecasting. Whether it's forecasting timelines or budgets or on-time arrivals, talk about why that's so pa- you're so passionate about helping leaders build better discipline and precision around their forecasting
1: well uh, first of all in the book we also have examples of smaller projects even everyday projects you know and and a project like writing a book you know or a project like putting on a wedding or a festival or a conference and so on. So it's all the way or, or we have a, a whole chapter about a house renovation in Brooklyn, you know, which exactly was done uh, by one of our, our editors at the Penguin Random House uh, when he told us that story, we said, that's got to go in the book, you know, because it's so good and it got a whole chapter. So we cover everything from small to very big project, projects. So why is it important to get the, the forecast, right? Well, forecasts are central to the business case. And if you don't have a realistic business case at the outset, you are, you are doomed. It's that simple. So you need to have a realistic business case. If your business case is going to be a re- realistic, you have to so have a realistic assessment, estimate of what the costs are going to be, how long it's going to take you to do the project, and also what are the revenues or other benefits that the project is going to deliver. If you don't have a pretty realistic idea of that our data show that you are very likely to go wrong so you want that and that's why we're talking about this thing about thinking slow and acting fast this is the rhythm of a successful project think slow act fast and most management leadership do the exact opposite you know they think fast they just let's get going and then they act slow because they are forced to act slow because so many things start going wrong because they hadn't thought it through. And and the majority of people that I talk to about these things will not to this. Yeah, we recognize this. This is what we do. We just we just get going really quickly. Uh, and then uh, we have all sorts of problems later. We say, inverse that, think slow, take your time in developing your business case and your whole process for how you're going to deliver and experiment. This is not a paper. Uh, and desk exercise or computer exercise. This is actually you need to experiment, uh, even if it's just thought experiments, but usually it's actually real uh, experiments, either uh, one-on-one in in physical uh, reality or on computers. You simulate the the project that you're going to do. So you actually make your mistakes when it's cheap. It's cheap to make mistakes on a computer, if you're an architect or other builder. It's cheap to make mistakes with the cardboard models or wooden models. It is very expensive to make the mistakes once you are actually delivering your IT system or your building or whatever it is in real life.
0: Ben, I think this is an uh, invaluable reminder for leaders. So I want to belabor it for a moment. When you open your book, you talk about several kind of key premises. One is think slow and act fast. And then you follow it up with this other idea that projects don't go wrong, they start wrong. And so where everyone is living in a, a short-term world, trying to get results fast, you know, uh, first move advantage, and, and how, how do we outpace everyone else, there really is a, a leadership competency, is there not a maturity, around thinking slow and acting fast, and recognizing that projects don't go wrong, they start wrong. Would you maybe just, in a rudimentary fashion, for everyone listening and watching at all levels of leadership, Revisit some of the key principles everyone needs to be reminded. It's cheaper to design on a computer than it is on a work site, obviously. Uh, They might be common knowledge to you, but we know common knowledge isn't common practice. Remind all of us the importance of thinking slow, acting fast, and that projects don't go wrong, they start wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, the reason that projects... uh start wrong is precisely because of this fast thinking that people don't think it through from the beginning and and that's what they need to do um we have other leadership principles actually the book is ended by a coda where where uh, i outline 11 leadership principles for how to get projects right one of them uh, that i really like is and it's a question i ask all leaders what's your lego so i'm danish as you pointed out and Lego is a Danish uh, toy company, the world's largest toy company. And I don't know about the, li- the listeners and viewers here, but I don't remember every, ever living my life without Legos, without stepping on Legos and so on, and uh, hurting my feet. Uh, and Lego is a fantastic concept, and we can actually use it in our leadership of projects. And you need to think about what are the elements that make up my project in order to be efficient in design and delivery. And if you don't know what your Lego is, then that's your problem. That's what you need to work on. And it turns out that the projects and project leaders that know what the Legos are, and I would actually generalize generalize this to organizations, to businesses and and, and public organizations, that you need to think about what what are the Legos that you're working with in whatever you're doing? What are the basic building blocks? If you can't standardize what you're doing in those terms, and it's not as black and white as a, as a Lego building block, it's a matter of getting towards standardizing things. And the more you can standardize things towards standard building blocks, the more successful you will be in delivering. Again, our data show this immensely clearly. So projects that are bespoke, and many projects are bespoke, many people actually think of their projects as unique. This is another leadership principle we have. Your project is not unique. And if you think your product is unique, you're in for problems. Actually, I tell leaders, if you hear anybody on your project teams or leadership teams talk about your products as unique, you either get rid of them or send them to me for further education Uh, because that's how serious it is. And it's easy to understand if you think something is unique, you don't have any reason to learn from others. You're unique, you know. So why would you look to uh, others for learning and experience? So you're cutting the learning process And that's another thing. That's another leadership principle. Learning has to be built into everything that you're doing. If you don't have learning built in, you don't have innovation built in, and you're toast. Uh, So we have something we talk a lot about in the book called positive learning curves. You need to get on positive learning curves, which means that every time you do something, it gets faster and cheaper. That's how you scale well. A lot of projects have the opposite. They have negative learning curves that it sounds completely counterintuitive, but it's a fact that we find projects that as people do those projects, they realize it's more difficult than they thought. So they realize it's gonna take longer the next time and it's gonna be more expensive the next time. That's what you don't want. You want the positive learning.
0: No, what I don't want is to be sent to Bent for further education, because that might be a rough (laughs) experience, but no, it's actually very well said. I, I understand your thinking. One of the concepts you share in your book, Bent, is this idea of start with the goal and plan backwards. That might not be intuitive to everyone. And I'm thinking about my own entrepreneurial businesses as an author myself and a multi-podcast host and parent and, you know, business owner. Remind us what it means to start with your goal and plan backwards.
1: This is something we got from Frank Gehry, the famous American-Canadian uh, architect uh, who works out of Los Angeles, um so we, we picked his brain because he's uh, he's uh, world famous for doing incredibly buildings uh, on budget and on time uh, in most cases. And uh, so uh, I've been lucky to uh, work with Frank Gary for many years and I've asked him through multiple interviews. I have tried to pick his brain on this. And one thing that comes up, you know, is he starts uh, every project with asking why. So that's the first thing he says i start every project with one word and it's why and i asked my clients why are you doing this project and i don't start anything until uh, we have a deep understanding of this why and we actually agree on it so we're on the same page and we know that we understand the same thing uh, by the answers to this question of why we're doing the project and then we start everything from there <clears throat> and this is what goes on the right in a traditional project management flowchart. This is the outcome, why they're doing it. That's what they want to arrive at. That's the reason they're doing it. And and, and that's where they will land. And then they work all the way backwards to the left of the diagram to figure out what are all the steps that we need to go through uh, in order to arrive at what we set out to do. And we keep an eye on the why all the way through so that we know in each stage of the process, no matter what we're doing. We're keeping an eye on the ultimate goal, the ultimate outcome in order to check whether what we're doing right now is actually the right thing to achieve that outcome. So it's a way of bringing, you know, a very commonsensical discipline into uh, the management and leadership and delivery of projects. But even though it's commonsensical, it's not common.
0: Uh, talk about the Chicago Fire Festival. What <clears throat> happened? What went right? What went wrong? And what should we all be reminded of from that example
1: yeah that's an example of risk management uh, really uh, so uh, the fire festival was a, a, a an event that uh, Chicago decided to put on where they that so the, in his in the history of Chicago there this famous fire uh, where the old the old Chicago burned down old Victorian houses and so on and and uh, and they wanted to celebrate that and, and put some, you know, mock-ups of houses like that on the on the river, on the lake, and uh, uh, and uh, they did this. And then they would simulate the fire. They would actually uh, they would put these buildings to, uh, to fire. And of course, uh, everybody was very concerned, including the fire brigade, about uh, nothing going wrong and the fire not getting out of control and nobody getting hurt, exactly as it should be. But by being so over-focused on this one risk, safety, uh, for uh, spectators and other people involved, um, they forgot to think about you know, the risk of uh, equipment malfunctioning, which is actually a very, conv- everybody knows that. <laughs> How many times have we been at lectures where the IT doesn't work? You know, It's always the technology, the IT or, or whatever, or some other gadget that doesn't work. So in this particular case, it turned out that the ignition didn't work. So, so, you know, everything was set up, they'd invested all this money, people were there, uh, like uh, tens of thousands of people were there as spectators to watch the the spectacle of the buildings going up in fire, and they didn't because the the ignition didn't work. They hadn't thought about, we need to have a backup if the ignition of the fire doesn't work, we need to have another way to actually start the fire. So it became, a, a, it was a big fiasco, and now it's, it's a joke in Chicago, you know, to to talk about this festival. It's, it's used as... Uh, you know, the 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 our typical example of uh, how you don't want to do things. And that's not how you want to go down in memory when you put on a big project like this.
0: Well, that isn't the only fire festival that went wrong, right? There's another very famous fire festival in the Caribbean that went sideways as well. Uh, let's talk about. Yeah, this, yeah. let's talk about Jimi Hendrix. I hear you're a fan. Absolutely. I mean, I love Jimmy. What's the lesson to be learned from your story about Jimi Hendrix in the book?
1: So because I'm a fan of Jimmy Hendrix, I've read all these uh, biographies about him. Uh, and uh, and in these biographies, uh, an example that pops up again and again is uh, the Electric Lady studio that he built in New York City. And that's actually still, it's the oldest functioning uh, music studio in New York City. And it's still going. Um, and uh, it was this nightclub that he liked to go to. Um, that had a nice vibe. He thought so. So he uh, he tried to investigate whether he could lease it or buy it, uh, and he could, you know. And then he decided that he wanted to make it into a nightclub where he could jam. But then his uh, producer, record producer Eddie Kramer, very famous, also producing the the Beatles and other big bands, he said, nah, "Don't do a don't do a club. Do a real studio. You are spending so much money in studios around the world that uh, that you." This would pay for itself, you know, by this safe studio fees. And, and Jimmy said, hey, that's a good idea. But I want a really cozy place that, uh, uh, you know, gives me the right vibe. So I feel like doing the music that I like to do. And my friends like to hang out with me, uh, which I like when I'm in the studio. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy got this and he got two young uh, kids to, uh, to work on it. Uh, one was uh, John Storick uh, right out of Princeton's architecture school. And he was like... 21 or 22 at this time. And he said, I've never done a studio before. I've never even been in a studio. I mean, you shouldn't be hiring me. And Jimmy and his manager said, That's fine, you know, do it. And of course, everything went wrong in the beginning. They had huge cost overruns and huge delays on this. And Jimmy actually had to go on tour to make more money for building the studio. And they were flying in money in bags, you know, on airplanes so that. The, 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 they could start the work again when it stopped, when they ran, ran out of cash, which they did several times. And in the end, uh, Jimmy actually had to go to his, uh, his record uh, company and ask for financing for it. And, and, and he got it. And they, they finally uh, got the studio finished, way over budget, way delayed and so on. Uh, but it's a really fine studio. And, and like I said, it's still uh, going and it's famous for its brilliant acoustics
0: uh most of us can't relate to that flying bags bags of money across the world and having studios built what do you think is the biggest lesson for the normal everyday project manager working in an organization that's been listening to us for 30 minutes what's the big takeaway from your feature about Jimi Hendrix?
1: the the takeaway and how we use it in the book is actually uh, as an example of how not to do project but still a project that we love you and i hope that comes out in the book but it's not the way to do it. And actually John Storick admitted that. So we interviewed John Storick about uh, how he did this uh, studio. He said, well, <laughs> we were lucky. And and he has now had a whole career uh, in building studios all over the world. And he said, this is definitely not the way I, I do it anymore and haven't done for a long time. This was only because I didn't know anything that I did it like this. But as I got more experienced, we started to think slow and act fast and do it completely different, uh, building on experience. It's, it's funny, actually, because Jimi Hendrix's band was called The Experience, Jimi Hendrix Experience. And we have a whole chapter about experience, uh, not about Hendrix experience, but experience and projects in the book. And this this is the lesson here. This is that you need experience or you're going to have to count on luck. And then we use our database to show what is your likelihood to actually end up lucky. And what is your likelihood of failing? And, and, and we have data for several thousand projects comparable to projects like J.B. Hendrix's project. And it turns out that you are 80% likely to go wrong if you do it the way Hendrix did it, and only 20% likely to get it right. So you definitely don't want to do it like that. The odds would be against you.
0: Ben, it seems like your book would be a superb read, uh, not exclusively for, but especially for innovations divisions Product development divisions, people that are working together need to understand the, the politics in the process of building and executing on time. It would also be a great book for, I would think, chief revenue officers and chief sales leaders to help the forecasting discipline of those that are creating custom solutions for clients and things like that. I can see this book getting great traction inside of Franklin Covey. Our time is ending. I'd like you just to identify and remind all of our listeners and viewers, what are the patterns that are consistent of successful projects? And what are the patterns that are consistent of failures, big and small? Give us two or three patterns of successful projects and the same with unsuccessful projects.
1: So I've I've had the privilege of hanging out with many successful project leaders, and I find that they as person as, as people, as personalities, they have an extremely attractive uh, feature, which is that they are optimistic realists. So they know how to be, they know that they have to be optimist in order to get things done, but they know how to harness their optimism and not let their optimism, let them be, you know, uh, ignorant or naive about how things, what they really cost and so on. So they have realism in understanding the world. And they have optimism in, uh, in, in believing in their own ability to change the world. And those are the two main things I would say for success is hyper-realism and optimism combined. And not a lot of people are able to do that. Most people are optimists. And if people are realists, then they become like you know, the realistic naysayer, or some, somebody who's always pointing out the reality of the situation, but not combining it with a can-do mm-hmm. attitude that you need in order to do projects. So that's success. The failure sides, um, well, there there's there so many things that uh, uh, that can contribute to uh, projects uh, becoming failures. But I would say the main thing is is ignoring the reality of the psychology and the power of projects, you know, and sort of going in blind and just uh, hoping that you'll get it right. That happens way too much. There's way too much hope. In projects, and hope is not a strategy. If you're hopeful, you are likely to fail.
0: Ben Flubier, your current book is How Big Things Get Done, The Surprising Factors That Determine the Fate of Every Project, from home renovations to space exploration and everything in between. Riveting read has given me a lot to think about, and I'll be certainly buying many copies of this book to give to people that I believe are in, are not in over their head, but are leading big scale projects that wanna make their legacy and that of their teams be much more likely to be positive than negative as a result of discussing your books. Uh, Thanks for joining us from Oxford, England today.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me, Scott. It's been a real pleasure.
0: The pleasure has been ours, Bent, and we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.